So this evening, I would like to look at the four great efforts, which is in a way part of the Eightfold Path, uh, included in right effort, because I feel it kind of helps us to look at conditions. To, because I think what we're developing here on this retreat, you know, it's not just being aware of the breath, the sensation, the feeling tone, but to me it's kind of through that becoming more aware of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. I think this is very important to see. It's not just about our inner life, but is that in being more spacious, in the experience to actually see the relationship between ourselves and the world and how we are influenced actually by external condition. So these four great efforts are very much about the awareness of conditions and in a way trying to, to work with the conditions and inner conditions, outer conditions. So first I will just read them out and then I will take each in turn. So the first one is in a way the endeavor, the intention to sustain positive states once they have arisen. Second one, to enable positive states that have not yet arisen to arise. Third, to let go of negative states once they have arisen. Fourth, to prevent negative states that have not yet arisen to arise. And to me, that's what I found interesting. It's not just about what's going on, but it's about what is not yet going on. And can we have some influence on that? Can we kind of work with this? So, Looking each in terms, the first one I would say is about how to sustain positive state, calm, clarity, stability, openness, wisdom, compassion. And to me, in a way, the first thing is actually to be aware that we are calm, aware that we are open, aware that we are wise aware that we are compassionate. I think this is, often this kind of thing are taken for granted. And so in a way the awareness is what I would call this experiential, organic awareness, this to really know. When you have a generous thought, to be aware of it. When you have a peaceful moment, to really be conscious of it. And so in a way, so that you in a way learn to be aware of it, to rest in it, to be present to it, to appreciate it. So the fact that it doesn't mean that we're going to grasp at it, but it's just we are aware of it. And actually in the awareness of it, in the appreciation of it, in the living of it, then generally it will help it to be more there. Because we know aware, ah, I am peaceful. And actually you kind of see, ah, I can be peaceful. I am not always tormented, confused. I can be peaceful. And just that awareness 
generally help us to continue to be peaceful a little longer. And so in a way, to me, this is a key to this appreciation of this positive state is the fact that we hold them very gently. And the image I would have is like a mother holding a child. If she holds the child too tight, it's going to cry. Too loose, it's going to fall. And so she has to hold the child very gently. And in terms of our meditation during this retreat, what is interesting also to look at is what I would call meditative states. When we feel, you know, at some point, we might feel quiet and clear, we might feel stable and open. And often what do we do at this time? Often what we do generally is that we sit in meditation and we wait for something special to happen. So we're kind of cultivating but waiting. And then if finally, finally something special happens, generally we're very excited. This has happened and you kind of start to describe it to yourself and you start to describe how you're going to describe it to others and by then it's totally gone. And to me, this is actually one of the key in the meditation retreat where we have the opportunity to really develop the meditation is that if you have what I would call a releasing, degrasping, quiet and clear state, to actually learn to be with it and actually not do anything with it. Because all the idea is that I need to deepen it. I don't think you need to do anything. I think the only thing you need to do to sustain it is just to be there, just to be with it, just to be with the quietness and the clarity, just there, not do anything. And what is interesting is that if you do that, you don't get excited, etc. You're just there. Actually, it lasts longer because you're just aware of it and you just are it. It just happens. And we let it happen. And so I think, in a way, this sustaining is not that we have to kind of crank up something to sustain it. It's just actually the fact that we're aware of it and we, in a way, let it happen. In a way, without interfering with it. We kind of stay in the flow of it. And so what I think is important in terms of daily life about this effort is the fact that in our daily life, to try to recognize when we are fine, when we are happy, when we are peaceful, when we are generous. And through that awareness, if we become more conscious of this, then actually we realize we have good quality, which can be activated, which then can be more developed, and then it balances often this feeling we have of things being stacked up towards the negative, that I am troubled, I am confused, this is happening, etc., etc. I think this is very important to really become more aware of the positive quality and the experiencing of them and the manifesting of them. Just a kind of... A, and at the same time, knowing that this quality of peace, generosity, of course, also is impermanent. So it will arise. We can try to be with it, 
to cultivate it in the way in just a doing of it. And that too will change. We cannot, this is not about perfection. We cannot always be at peace. We cannot always be happy. But it's about the fact that when it happens, when the different condition comes together and it happens, then we are aware of it and we are with it. And this happened to me many years ago. When my niece was younger, now she's 11, but she must have been five at the time, and she comes on the holidays sometime to stay with my mother, who lives below, and then she comes to visit us upstairs to have friends and game with auntie and uncle. So we had worked in the day in the garden. We were a little tired, so we sat in the, the living room, and we were just listening to some music or something, I think, by Schubert, and we're just sitting on the sofa. And she appears. She appears in the living room, and she looks at us, and she listens to the music, and she says, I am going to dance. <laughs> so we just sit there, we say, yes, fine, why not? And so off she goes, and this is not the Bolshoi, but she does her things. And what was amazing is that it lasted 30 minutes. And it was not a kind of music, for sure. But what, the only thing we needed to do was just to look at her. That's all was required of us, not to praise her, not to do anything. So we just sat there, and we just watched her, and time to time she watched that we watched her, and that's what happened. And it was a wonderful moment, very spacious, very warm, wonderful. And then after 30 minutes, she just raced down back to go to see grandmother. But then what happened the next morning? She came up again, and she wanted me to put the music again. Because she wanted to experience that nice time together again. But music was not right. So I, I had to try several CDs, but each time it was not the same. So in a way, we had this wonderful moment which in a way sustained itself because we did not do anything. We were just had to be present to it. That's all what was necessary. But at the same time, we could not repeat it. But we could have another beautiful moment in another way. Then there is a second one, and then it gets interesting. Because this is about to enable positive state that I have not yet a reason to arise. To me, that's very interesting. And you know, it's about how can we enable peace, calm, clarity, creativity, compassion to appear. <coughs> I mean, this is what in a way the Buddha is saying. How can we help the condition within ourselves, outside of ourselves, so that calm, peace, generosity are more likely to appear. So he's saying that it is not predestined. We can actually have an influence. And so, of course, meditation can help us. I think also the tools of awareness, as I was mentioning some talks ago, that, you know, the breath can enable us to be more calm. The sound can enable us to be more open. So in a way, what we're doing here is cultivating tools that then we can take in our daily life so that then 
We can create, help to, to, to help the conditions. That it be about stability, openness, or calmness. And again, it's really, those, it's not kind of like a major thing. But I think what we need in our daily life for that to happen, more, more likely to happen, is to have the intention. So to remember that we can do that. This actually is the thing. Because what is interesting in terms of meditation in daily life is that often people will say, I don't have the time. I like this one. I don't have the time to meditate. And personally, I would say, but generally most people find the time either to watch TV, either to read the newspaper, or at least to have lots of cups of tea, especially in England. So they have lots of time to, you know, five minutes or more, watch TV, cups of tea, newspaper. And I think it's the same with the meditation. We have to be careful of seeing meditation as this kind of major endeavor. I need to have a cushion, I need to have a spot, I need to have a candle, I need to have incense, I need everything to be quiet. Personally, I don't think you need any of this to do meditation, to just watch the breath. I would say you just need five minutes. You don't need hours on end. You just need to remind yourself, hmm, I could do this. Yeah, meditation, that's a good idea. Why not? And in a way to see, to, to take away the idea that meditation is a special activity but that it's just something we can do. And I would say, when we sit in meditation in daily life, I would say it has three main kind of object, main intention. The first one, if we do sitting meditation, is to stop. Because generally we associate being a human being with moving, with acting. And I think it's important to learn to just stop. It doesn't mean we stop all days. But we stop five minutes. We just stop for five minutes. And then we just watch the breath. Or we listen to sound. Another thing about sitting in daily life is to remind us of our value. That we value the meditation. We value the wisdom. We value the compassion. So that in a way, that becomes the ground on which our life can be built. And then the third thing is to cultivate meditation, the concentration, the looking deeply. And we try to do this. And to me, you know, it's better to do five minutes every day than one hour every two months. I think, you know, just five minutes. If you just have five minutes, five minutes. Or ten minutes if you have more. But to see what is reasonable in my life. What time is reasonable? How can I fit it? And just to do that, every day, just for five minutes. And that will bring something because it's an intention. And then it kind of, in a way, creates a condition for you to remember it. And then to use it in your daily life. Like often I feel when we feel really busy, it's interesting, feeling really busy. And then if we remember, we can stop for a minute and just watch the breath. Then we just stop for a minute watch the breath, and then we can continue to do what we do. To do meditation, we don't have to have 
I mean, we can sit for an hour if we have it, but if we don't, we can just do it for a minute. And so it kind of, in a way, to see the, the meditation is there all the time. Then we have the informal meditation. I think informal meditation is to not do something specific like the breath or the body or the sound, but it's more a general intention to be aware, to be conscious in a wider way. So as we said, when you work at the computer, trying to be aware in a spacious way. When you work, trying to be aware in a spacious way. Because when you work, it's interesting, when we work, what do we do? Often we barely started, we're already finished. So we're not really present to it. So we're trying to be present to what do we do, how we do it, how we impact on our environment, on the people around us, how they impact on us. And so I think if we do the meditation, if we cultivate just a little in our daily life the tool of awareness, then in a way I think it will help toward the condition, toward possibly more likely kind of positive state might arise. But that's not the only way. I think there is many different ways to help the conditions that positive state arise. I remember I was once in... Um, Living in England, it was in the winter, one of these cold, windy, very wet, dark winter. And I was starting to feel really out of it, really like, ooh, kind of not well. And I thought, what can I do? I need to do something. And then I thought creativity. And then I just kind of decided to do woodwork. So for 12 weeks, I did woodworking, uh, two hours one evening a week. And that was enough to actually help positive state to arise. Just that. Just to do that. So it's the same way when uh, I stopped being a nun. And uh, then for 10 years I had nothing to do with children. And I found really weird around children. I did not know what to do with them. Kind of little exotic creature. <laughs> and I thought this is strange to, to feel like that. So I thought I need to do something. So I went to do a course, a six-month course in preschool learning. And after that, no problem. Now I'm very good with children. So again, realizing the condition, cultivating the condition. So now, naturally, I can be very easy with the children. So you know, there are many, I think, in, in all of our life, is in a way to look at what is it that helps? What is it that will help us in the inner or outer condition? So it's more likely to arise, this calm, this peace, this generosity. So in a way, it's kind of, to me, part of it is this recollection <coughs> of the possibility of cultivation. If I think of a, a book which I really recommend for uh, people who have uh, pain, especially physical pain, by Darlene Cohen, which uh, is called Finding the Joy in the Heart of Pain. And she was a, a Zen teacher for many years, really active, really good health, and then 40 years old, and then she gets rheumatoid arthritis. And she really is very in great pain, really hampered in her circumstances. 
And then she realized she had to be differently with her body, differently with herself. And the whole book is about looking at that. But she described this moment where sometimes she's immobile. She really can't barely move. And so she just has to lie on her bed. And she said what she does then is just spacious awareness meditation. And she said when she does that, when she tried to just be aware of things in the room, thing outside the room, suddenly it's like a world is revealed to her, that she sees the light and shade, the colors, the object, the sound outside, everything has a different quality. And she feels very peaceful, very open at that moment. But because, in a way, she helps the condition that way, but instead of thinking, this is terrible that I am like that, to turn it around and really open to the world with the awareness. Then you have the next one, which is about to let go of a negative state once they have arisen, which we could look at, dissolve, let go of the difficulties, the obstacles which have appeared. And to me, this is in a way also the help of the meditation is that we have to be aware of it. In a way, before we can deal with the difficulty, before we can even think of letting go of difficulty, and I think we have to be careful with that idea of let go, thinking that, you know, let go, ping, I let go straight away. I don't think it works that way. But in order to be able to look at how can I transform this difficulty, we first have to be aware of it. This, I think, is the first thing, and I think the, how the meditation can help us to just be aware of what is going on, to become aware that we caught, to be aware that we lost, that something is going on inside us. And, and also the fact that we have to accept that at times we'll have difficulty, at times we'll have obstacle, and we will feel angry, unhappy, agitated, confused, the whole of it. Once I was uh, a few years back in South Africa, we start uh, teaching a retreat. I phoned home to check everything is okay. And my mother said, things are not okay. We got robbed. So thieves came when she was not there, and etc., etc., and stole various things and things like that. And I was in South Africa for the next six weeks. I could not do anything. But I was sitting in meditation. And for a day, it was going round and round and round. And then after a day, I realized there was two strands to my going round and round thinking. First one, security. How can I secure the place? So all kind of idea of, you know, secure, blend door, more solid doors, etc., safe, etc., etc. And it was going around. And then the second one was revenge. You know, I was thinking, how can I make something in the house that if they come again, they'll be caught, you know, like a kind of a rat trap or something. <laughs> Until sitting there in meditation, I realized there is no point. But in a way, it took me a day 
to really see, ah, this is what I'm doing. This is what I am thinking. Because until then, I was just caught in the story of it. I was just caught. So in a way, we have to accept that we have to be caught. It has to go through us when we have something like that that happened. But once I saw it, when I saw, oh, security, I can't do anything. No point in thinking about it. And it went. Revenge, not a very good idea. And it went. And then I really let it go. And I did not think about it again until I got home and then did something about it. So in a way, this, this kind of effort, I think, is first is to be aware. Aware that, yes, something is going on here. I am obsessing about this. I'm having this difficulty. And in a way, that in, in, in order to do that, we need to be aware. That's why the awareness of the body that's where of the awareness of the feeling sensation. So we're not just caught in the abstraction of it, but we start to really feel it inside. How does it feel to really know it? So then we become more easily conscious of it. And I think once we really feel it in the whole organism, personally I feel it's a little easier to let go of it, to see, ah, I'm doing this, I don't really need to do this right now. So, in terms of what I mentioned before, I think one of the, some of the signals is to become aware of the exaggeration. When we start to exaggerate, or when we start to proliferate into the past and into the future, so that then we're not creatively engaged with what is really going on now. That I think is important in terms of the creative engagement to really see, hey, what am I doing? Is this relevant really to what is happening right now? And so in a way, to be a little careful with this, it's always like this, it's never like that. And to then come back to the multidimensionality of the experience, so then the creative potential is more accessible. Then there is a last one, which is, again, interesting. To prevent negative states that have not arisen yet to arise. So that, I mean, everybody would want to do this, I presume. I want one of those, you know. And basically, it's to work with condition so that negative states do not arise. And it's back to be aware. In order for negative state to not arise, then we have to be aware, how do they arise? So in a way, we must not shy away from negative state. In order to know them better, we have to see them. This is the first thing, to see what goes on. And to become more aware, what is a trigger? Because this is a thing about impermanence. We are not always in a negative state. We're not always angry or jealous or low or angry or whatever it is. We're not doing that all the time. It happens. And so generally there is a trigger. Then there is certain habits and patterns. Then there is certain conditions. And there is some contributing factors. So to me, when we have a negative state, what is interesting is to explore them. 
not to say, I am a Buddhist, I should not have negative state, because one of the things, for example, anger. Buddhists generally are told anger is not a good idea. But I think anger is just a natural human feeling. So I think to say we should not be angry as Buddhists, I don't think it's, you know, we Buddhists are human beings, they get angry too. But just to see what becomes interesting is to explore it. When am I angry? Why am I angry? What are the triggering? What is a trigger? What is it that gets me? Then what is it that contributes to it? What are the inner conditions? What are the outer conditions? And if we look at the trigger, often it's because we feel frustrated. I think often trigger is kind of, we feel there is an obstacle, we feel there is a limitation, we feel blocked, we feel frustrated, things are not moving. How does it feel when you feel happy? You feel happy, at peace, kind, compassionate. Things move, things flow. Things seems to fall into place. But when it's not like this, it's like something is in the way. Something blocks us. Something kind of limits us. Something is, things are not going our way. That's sometimes something that happens or things are difficult outside of our own operation. Because I think we also have to accept that external conditions also have a lot to do with it. I mean, I could not predict that the robber was going to go into our house. You know, I can't do very little about that. But I can possibly do something about my reaction to the fact that it happened. And so in terms of ourselves, what I think is interesting is to look at the contributing factor. One of them, I would say, is busyness. Busyness in terms of compassion. When we get into this one-track mind, I have this to do, that to do, that to do, you get into this funny state where suddenly this thing, this what you have to do is only thing in your life. And then whatever happened on the side, who cares? You are ill, never mind. In two days, maybe I can you know, look at it, but right now, no way. And it's interesting to see uh, when I see myself going into this one-track mind, there is kind of like this closing off. So that, in a way, I would say is a contributing factor to kind of being an obstacle to compassion, to generosity, to opening to others. Another one is tiredness. Tiredness very quickly can turn, with some people, with myself, into irritability. And that's kind of, you know, for a while, long ago, I used to look, for, to, to, look to pick argument with Steven. I kind of wrote, suddenly I would, yes, yes, he's done something, yes. So then I would kind of go and pick an argument with him, and he would look at me like, what's the matter with you? You know, I did not do nothing. So I thought, what am I, why am I doing this? And then I realized it was because I was very tired. And when I get tired, I get irritable. Then I generally look for somebody to have, you know, some problem with. And I thought, well, maybe it's better to go and lie down and rest for half an hour. And then I became a much nicer person. You know, so in a way, it's kind of seeing. You know, normally you kind of find, and then you're not. What is contributing to that? There is also sleeplessness. When we don't sleep, that has a big impact 
on ourselves. And another thing is overextending ourselves, kind of trying to do too many things, trying to do too many things, and then it's very difficult because we feel, oh, I have all this to do, this to do, and then you nearly become paralyzed and you can't do anything. So in a way, to me, within this thing about this uh, false effort is to know our limitation, to know emotional, physical, mental limitation. What are my limitations? And to really see how, you know, if we kind of accept more our limitation, then I think it becomes easier to have less of this negative state to arise. Then you also have stress. I mean, stress. Again, overworking, overactivity. Recently, I read this thing, kind of small article somewhere about this fellow who was working, but like when he was like, he thought his whole life was work. So he would work all week, all weekend, nonstop. Till finally, one day, he had kind of sort of a heart attack in front of his. Uh, door in front of his apartment and then he thought mm, maybe I should change you know maybe I should kind of work less or there is this wonderful story in uh, the book by John Kabat-Zinn the one who uh, created uh, mindfulness based stress reduction and in it he tells the story of this fellow who has had heart problem he has had really bad heart problem and that's why finally he goes to this mindfulness course and then the mindfulness course is very much about being aware. So much so that one day, in the early morning, six o'clock, or is it late at night, can't remember, suddenly he realized, here is this guy who is 70 years old, and he's washing his car. He's a late at night, and he has a heart problem. He's early in the morning. And suddenly he realized, maybe I don't need to do this now, <laughs> you know? And suddenly he realized his limitation through the awareness. And then he kind of, in a way, it's kind of seeing that. To me, this is an important part of that, the negative state not arising. So in a way, it's kind of looking. What is it that helps? What is it that does not? What is it that kind of, in a way, make me close? What is it that makes me open? What is it that helps me to be stable? What is it that does not? And I'll just finish by a short story about this uh, young man who is getting not so young anymore. But when he wrote the story, he was uh, younger. This is uh, Noah Levine, and he wrote a wonderful book uh, called The Dharma Punks, and uh, he's a young fellow who is covered in tattoo. So it's kind of a Buddhist teacher covered in tattoo, wonderful tattoo, colored and everything. Big guy. And actually, he's a son of Stephen Levine, who is a great spiritual teacher on death and dying, meditation and everything. Which, there was an early divorce and whatever condition, Noah became a very anxious, anguish, problematic young man. He started to drink, take drugs, stole was very aggressive, beat, beat people off, etc., etc., till finally, he, several times he went, uh, was arrested by the police, and finally, 
nearly 17 and something. He was sent to juvenile hall in prison, and there was some danger. He would go to the adult prison. So he was really in dire strait. Big problem. And so he was uh, sent to a kind of a cell on his own, and he was really depressed, thinking, my life is finished, I am no good. Da, 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 da. And then he phoned his dad, Stephen Levine, his one phone call. And he said, Dad, I am pff, terrible state, awful. What can I do? And his dad says, Watch the breath. <laughs> and you might think, oh, well, you know, maybe you require something a little stronger than that. <laughs> but actually, because he was on his own in this cell, he had nothing better to do. So he decided to do it. And actually, it worked. Because when he did the breath, when he really like, he was kind of concentrating on the breath, I mean, for his life, really. So he was really kind of very, uh, the motivation was strong. In a way, he did not exaggerate. He did not proliferate. Of course, he was in difficulty. But when he just came back to the breath, moment after moment, he started to get a little peace. He started to kind of see his life in a more spacious way. And then when he got out of that cell, he was able to listen to somebody who suggested that he go to Alcoholic Anonymous, and then he got out of the jail, and then he did uh, recovery, and he became a meditation teacher, etc. And to me, what is interesting here is that you have this very small thing, watching the breath. And actually it had a very powerful effect on that young man. So in a way, to, to, to not think so much about what I would call perfection, like I have to transform my whole life, I have to become a perfect Buddha or a perfect meditator, but more to look in my life, I would nearly say, what is the least thing I can do so that I can sustain peace and generosity when they happen? And I can work with difficult states when they happen. So, are there any questions or comments? Yes? You've been encouraging us to, um, to identify present, neutral, and unpleasant states. In my experience, is that quite a lot of them are neutral. And I, I, just, I suppose that's what you'd be trying to. Exactly. <laughs> That's a little the point. Because you see, in uh, one of the, the, the one of the quotes which I found very interesting, from actually not the Buddha, though you can find it in the Pali Canon, which means it is considered canonical, so and it is said by a nun. So she had a great insight that nun. And what she said is that 
when pleasant, when there is pleasant feeling, as long as they are pleasant, it's pleasant. When they stopped, it's unpleasant. As long as unpleasant feeling tone are there, it's unpleasant. When they stop, it's pleasant. And I think this has been proven scientifically that people prefer a sharp, short pain than a long, less pain. Well, actually, the scientists thought it would be the opposite. Because of that, when the sharp pain stops quickly, ah, it's so nice. But the most interesting is the last one. If you understand, if no, if you don't understand neutral feeling, it is unpleasant. If you understand neutral feeling, it is pleasant. And I think it's true. That the fact that when we see, you know, pleasant, uh, neutral feeling actually is restful, is peaceful. But generally we associate it with boredom. Nothing exciting is happening. My life is not exciting. Nobody loves me because I am not exciting. And off we go. And when actually, I mean, you know, you can't be excited all the time. It's a little kind of tiring on the nervous system. And I think in a way, the baseline, I would say, is neutral. But that it's very restful. And I think it's important for us to realize that. Not that we need to be there all the time, not. But when it's pleasant, as the Buddha said, be aware of it, sustain it. When it's unpleasant, be aware of it, work with it. When it's neutral, rest. That personally would also be my advice on that one. Um, this is a, a different kind of question. Both your lectures and Stephen's lectures are extremely rich to try and remember it all, even writing frantically. Will they be available on tape or CD? Yeah, first, I don't think you need to remember any of this. And you will just, whatever you remember, this is what works. Don't worry about that. But yes, if you want to listen to them again, that's why they are taped. And at the end of the on Sunday, you can order them if you want to listen to them again. <laughs> it's possible, it's possible. Uh, yes? Just wondered where the four efforts were written. You find them in a lot of places in the Pali Canon. And generally, they, I mean, I really expressed it in simple terms. Generally, they express in kind of like wholesome and awesome and the kind of the phrase is a little more complicated. But if you look at just right effort, you know, one in the Eightfold Path, and then you generally find it. In, uh, you find it either... One of the good places to find it is from this book by Bhikkhu Bodhi, which again is on my bibliography on the website, which is The Eightfold Path. And when it comes to the right effort, he explained it. Though he explained it in more traditional terms than I would. Yes? A technique that uh, is used by Thich Nhat Hanh is sharing happiness. And it's where you share um, a happy moment or a happy experience that you had during the week. And the fact that you share it with everybody means that everybody gets happier and a more positive state of mind is developed. And it's, I've done it and it's very effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that actually this is a part of mudita. 
which is uh, altruistic joy or rejoicing, rejoicing in one's good fortune, rejoicing in other good fortune, and from that to share it. And I, I was planning to talk about it actually on uh, Saturday evening. But that's, yes, a very good method. And I mean, Tignatan is also now, he does a smiling meditation. You kind of, <laughs> you smile or he does hugging meditation. You know, all with that kind of, you know, cultivating the, the positive state and cultivating the condition for it. He has many good methods uh, about that. Yes. Yes. May he survive. <laughs> I hope he'll uh, just a uh, little. Somebody could ch- go and check later if he's still okay. Um, yeah, I guess there's a lot of negative beliefs or things I was telling myself. And the, I suppose, the, the effort to cultivate or remind myself of my ability to love opened, it up, opened the positive attributes and possibilities for me. You see, this is what I think one has to really, and that's why I'll talk again about uh, love, loving kindness on Saturday, uh, is that we should be careful. I know Stephen seems to talk a lot this retreat about suffering and death. <laughs> but I think personally it's very important not, not just to focus on what is negative and what is difficult. And that's why I think it's so important the right effort. Because the Buddha says, yes, there is negative state, we need to work with them, but yes, there are positive state, and it is good to focus on them. So the Buddha was very aware of that. And to me, that's why I would emphasize that when we work with what is difficult within ourselves, equally at the same time, we have to cultivate what is positive within ourselves. And that has to happen together. That we don't think, we, I must first get rid of the negative and then it will get positive. No, 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 no. We have to work on the two together. And I think that's what the Brahma Viharas, the four quality of loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, and equanimity are very much about. Cultivating the positive state, sustaining them. Because in a way, again, we experience ourselves differently. I think that's what is kind of recognizing that in this processual self, there is all kind of seeds. That, you know, I think the, the Buddhist path is about culti- working with the difficult seed, but it's also cultivating, watering, exercising the positive seeds. And in a way, what is interesting, as you say, the more you do it, the more they are there. And I think one of the things is because we exercise them. You know, if you cultivate generosity, then your, I would say your generosity muscle are more active. Then if they're more active, they're going to be more kind of, you know, it's the same when we do exercise. You know, the, the body is more active, it's the same. And I think it's important to see that when we do something, it's kind of in the doing of it, 
it develops itself. In the same way that, yes, I mean, if you're very angry and you keep getting angry, then unfortunately that's why we'll develop too. And we must stop here. There needs to be some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.